So we're beginning a new series now which will go for the next five weeks on the spirit of holiness, understanding who the spirit is and how he is at work among his church. This series is in a sense a sequel to the series that we had last year on Be Holy As I Am Holy. There's a reason why the spirit is called the Holy Spirit because the Spirit and his work is central to the Father's plan to make a holy people for himself, a people set apart exclusively for him. Now it seems a tendency in the church historically from time to time to forget about the Holy Spirit, to overlook his work. The Pentecostal movement, which began in the early 20th century, was founded and built on a renewed discovery, a renewed experience of the Holy Spirit and his work in the world and in the church and in a way also a response to the state of the church at the time that had taken on cultural ideas that had come out of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a transformation that happened in Western society uh, where there was a, a big emphasis on just the secular uh, human knowledge uh, and it kind of pushed aside any idea of the spiritual dimension. The church had taken on board some of those ideas and as, as a result it had kind of lost a sense of the power of the gospel. So the, the Pentecostal movement was a response to that, God renewing and reviving his church. Ironically, though, I recently read a book by, uh, that was put out by a large Pentecostal church in Australia. It was designed as, a, uh, as an introduction to the Christian faith and as a, a basic discipleship manual. And as I was reading it, uh, I was expecting to come to the section on the Holy Spirit. But in the entire book, there were only two references to the Spirit, And they were only in passing. They weren't the main topic. There wasn't actually a chapter on the Holy Spirit and his work in the church. Now, the book was full of references to Jesus, which was great. But for whatever reason, the author of this book had... I almost felt like he'd betrayed his own heritage as a Pentecostal by forgetting or ignoring the Holy Spirit. So... Only a hundred years after the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, there are even Pentecostals who are forgetting the Holy Spirit. The way that we view God can unfortunately be shaped by culture, as it was a hundred years ago. We live in a, a culture that's, that's in the process of rejecting the materialism of previous generations but it isn't interested in connecting with the church. In the 20th century, there was a significant decline in church attendance and involvement. There were things like uh, the new atheism that was growing up. There was growing secularism. And so people began rejecting the church because they were rejecting the whole idea of God and of a spiritual dimension. But then at the start of the 21st century, 
just two decades ago, we were faced with two big things, among others. There was the rise of Islamic terrorism, kind of marked by the destruction of the World Trade Centre. We saw people in the world killing in the name of God, in the name of their religion. But we also saw the rise of what's been called the new atheism. People, uh, prominent people, academics, uh, being aggressively opposed to religion, not just not interested, but actually opposing it. So, some social scientists say, well, that was actually a response to September 11, as these, these people, particularly men, well, it seems to be men, doesn't it, uh, who were standing up and saying, well, there you go, uh, religion has only brought harm to this world, so therefore we should reject it. But this new atheism hasn't actually produced a generation of atheists. And the phenomenon of Islamic terrorism hasn't produced a generation of atheists. Instead, there's a growing number of people who would put themselves into the category of spiritual but not religious. Church attendance is still declining, but people aren't rejecting the church because they don't believe in God or something spiritual. They're rejecting the church because they're rejecting the whole idea of organised religion. They still want to have some kind of spirituality. And that's another trendy word we see around today, spirituality. The idea that as a human being I have in myself some kind of capacity to tap into the spiritual, non-physical dimension. This kind of idea of spirituality but without organised religion is summed up in this quote from a, his, this guy is a professor of psychology, he also apparently was once a minister. He says, spirituality manifests in countless outer forms. Underneath these outward forms, there is a common longing for the sacred, a universal desire to touch and celebrate the mystery of life. It is in the depths of the soul that one discovers the essential and universal dimensions of spirituality. That's, that's a, a very good summary of the way that people today in our culture think. There's something within me that's spiritual and I need to learn to tap into that spiritual dimension somehow. Well, the scriptures tell us something quite different about spirituality. Firstly, the scriptures don't use the word spirituality in the sense of human capacity to connect with the spiritual. The only true spirituality is found in a relationship, communion with the triune God, God the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. A truly spiritual person is simply someone who lives in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. Someone who's filled with the Spirit, who's directed by the Spirit, who worships the Father in spirit and truth, 
So if, if we are to be a holy people and if we are to be a spiritual people, we need to know the Holy Spirit. But we can't know the Holy Spirit apart from knowing Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, as if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. To know the Spirit, we must know Christ, because he is the Spirit of Christ. There's two main reasons why we cannot know the Spirit apart from Jesus, the Son, and apart from the Father. Firstly, because of who the Spirit is, and secondly, because of what the Spirit does. So, firstly, who is the Holy Spirit? The important thing is that it's who, not what. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's fully God. He's distinct as a person from the Father and the Son, yet perfectly united with them as the one true God. Because God is triune, three persons in one, we cannot know or encounter any one of the three persons without also knowing and encountering the other two. If we could know one without the others, then God would have to be divided within himself. Jesus made it clear that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. We can only know God as Father because we know Jesus as his only begotten Son. And the Holy Spirit is described both as the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. That's why the Holy Spirit causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, and Jesus is Lord. In Jesus' uh, Great Commission, well-known words, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them into the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's not strictly referring there to the words that we are to use when we baptise someone in water, but to the fact that when the Gospel is proclaimed and people are made into disciples, they are baptised or immersed into the life the name of the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Secondly, what does the Spirit do? Well, as God works in his work of salvation, all three members of the Trinity work together in perfect unity. In every aspect of salvation, all three members are fully involved in some way. However, each member has its own, their own distinctive roles. One helpful way to think about this is that the Father initiates, the Son mediates, 
and the Spirit completes. So the Father calls creation into being by his word. He establishes the plan of salvation. He sends the Son and he adopts redeemed sinners into his family of which he's the head. The Son, the Son delights to do the Father's will. Creation is in, through and for him. He bridges the gap between humanity and the Father as our great High Priest. He shares his victory over sin and death with us and he intercedes for us now before the Father's throne. He is the mediator. What of the Spirit? Well, the Spirit brings order, life and fruitfulness to creation. He speaks through the prophets and apostles so that the fullness of who the Father and the Son is is revealed to us. He washes and renews us by applying to us what the Son has accomplished at the cross. And he brings forth his fruit in the lives of God's children as we look forward to the day when we will be perfected, fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. That's the goal for us, that we would be like that, displaying the character of the Spirit himself. Peter, in his letter, puts it this way. That's the wrong reference, I think. Oh, no. Um, Verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, here's the Father's initiating work, in the sanctification of the Spirit... That's the Spirit's completing work where he makes us holy and complete for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. There's the Son's mediating work. Now each of these roles, Father, Son and Spirit, they're all complementary. They all work together perfectly. If we were to take away the action of one, we would undermine the work of the others. How could the Son have come to die for us on the cross if it weren't the Father's plan in the first place to send him? We can't know the salvation that the Son has accomplished apart from the plan that the Father set in place but also apart from the work of the Spirit in bringing the reality of that and applying it to us. We can't know ourselves to be sons and daughters of the Father apart from the work of the Spirit. Let's look a a little closer at the Spirit's work. Picking up the first thing that we see of the Spirit in the Bible. Genesis 1-2 The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the the Hebrew word here for spirit is ruach. It can also mean wind or breath or breeze. To pronounce ruach, you must breathe out. And the word sounds like that which it describes, the sound of rushing wind. 
Now, wind in creation isn't literally the Holy Spirit, but think of it this way. God created a world in which there is wind, rushing wind, to remind us constantly of the Spirit's work in creation. John Calvin, famous reformer, was actually known as the theologian of the Holy Spirit because he has taught more about the Holy Spirit than probably any other theologian before or since him. Here's what he says about this passage. It is by no means an obscure testimony which Moses bears in the history of the creation when he says that the Spirit of God was expanded over the abyss or shapeless matter for it shows not only that the beauty which the world displays is maintained by the invigorating power of the Spirit, but that even before this beauty existed, the Spirit was at work cherishing the confused mass. The, the picture there is of a, is like a, a mother bird who hovers over the nest, caring and protecting for her chicks. And that's what Calvin is picking up on. At the very beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering over the formless void, cherishing it, because he knew what the Father's plan was to bring order and life out of this chaos. Now this connection between the Spirit and water is picked up through the Bible. If you know the story of Noah's flood, at the end of the flood, we're told God made a wind, again that word ruach, blow over the earth and the waters subsided. During this time that the waters were subsiding, Noah sent out the dove, which flew across the waters as they subsided, returning with the sign of new life in its beak, a fresh olive branch. So the Spirit was at work in the flood. He was at work through the judgement of the flood, of the waters, but it was the Spirit who then renewed and recreated the world and separated again the water from the dry land and through that saved humanity through Noah and his family. During the Exodus, the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they were being pursued by Pharaoh's armies and they came to the edge of the sea. They were hemmed in between the sea and the armies who were threatening to destroy them. Now, contrary to the way it's depicted in all the movies, we're told Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. The strong east wind, the ruach, is the word there again. See, there's that same picture of the spirit over the waters separating the water from the dry land and by doing that, the Israelites were saved as they passed through the water. But then also, it was the work of the spirit that made the waters come back and bring judgment upon the Egyptian armies. When we come to the New Testament, 
we see the spirit associated with the waters of baptism. Think of Jesus' baptism. The spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. Deliberate reminder of the flood and the dove that Noah sent out from the ark. That dove was a sign that Jesus is the new and better Noah. Through him, God will bring both judgment but also salvation. A bit after his baptism, Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus and he says to him that he must be born of water and the Spirit. Later in his ministry, he stood up in the temple at the festival of booths on the day when the people were remembering when the water came out of the rock as their ancestors were in the desert. He stood up and he invited people to come and to drink the streams of living water that will come from him. And his disciples uh, heard that and understood he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. And then later in the New Testament, Peter, in his first letter, connects baptism with Noah's flood, showing us that the waters of baptism and the waters of the flood are both symbolic of what he calls a baptism that now saves us. What is the baptism that now saves us? It's not being dunked in water. It's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit brings us into the life and the love of the triune God. So, the Spirit who hovered over the waters at creation cherishing the confused mass is the spirit who hovers over us. As we sang in that hymn, he manifests his power and he calms our restless hearts just as he calmed the confused mass of the formless void. The one who holds all things together in the universe also dwells with and in us. Now, in light of that, it's important that we recognise two dangers that we need to avoid when we are speaking of or thinking of the Spirit. Firstly, because of these images of water and wind, and uh, we also see the image of fire being uh, an image of the Spirit, we might easily slip into speaking in impersonal ways about the Spirit, as if he's a power or a life force that we somehow tap into. That's that idea of spirituality again. He's symbolised by wind, but he's not the wind. He breathes into us the breath of life like he did Adam, but he's not the breath of life. Our life is not the spirit. But every breath we take is a gift of the spirit. As we saw earlier, the Spirit is both personal and he is God. So we must never refer to him as it, always he in personal terms. The images of wind and fire and water remind us of the Spirit's work, but when we think of the Spirit himself, we should always do so in personal, relational ways. We encounter the Spirit not in an abstract experience, 
but in a personal relationship. The second danger is that we might tend to only associate the spirit with what we call supernatural or miraculous or spontaneous things. And we might miss the fact that he is constantly at work in creation, bringing order from chaos, causing life to spring up, giving breath to every living creature. He's at work in the things that we might be tempted to call the ordinary, such as the reading and preaching of the word, the sacraments of communion and baptism, the love and fellowship that we express with one another, the unity that we enjoy as the body of Christ, the day-to-day growth and maturity that we experience as the Father makes us more and more like Jesus. They're all the work of the Holy Spirit and we, we should be just as amazed and awestruck and filled with wonder at the Spirit doing those things as we would if he chose to miraculously heal someone before us today. We shouldn't also be surprised if he does decide to miraculously heal someone before our eyes or to manifest himself in the ways that we see in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. But we shouldn't be disappointed if the main thing we see him doing is bringing us to a maturity of faith in the Lord Jesus and enabling us to love one another with self-sacrificial love. The Holy Spirit has been called by some theologians the shy member of the Trinity, maybe because he's directly mentioned in the Bible less often than the Father and the Son, but also because his work in maturing us, perfecting us, completing us as God's children, in a sense is the icing on the cake of the work of the Father and the Son. All that he does is not about bringing glory to himself, but rather he inspires us, he draws us out to worship the Father in spirit and truth. He draws us out to give honour to Jesus as Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But having said that, I'm not sure if shy is the best word to use of the Spirit. He may be mentioned explicitly less often than the Father and the Son, but as we've seen, the more we look, the closer we look, we actually see him on every page of the Scriptures. We see that he's active in all that happens in our lives. As we've seen, he brings God's judgments to bear upon sinful humanity. He's constantly striving with humanity in our wickedness. He's, he's the one who's preventing evil from reaching its fullest expression. We've just been shocked in this last week by seeing a man murder his own family and then kill himself. Just a horrific act of evil. And when we see things like that, we shouldn't point the figure and say, yes, that man is evil and I'm not. It's a reminder to us of what is actually in the depths of the human heart 
And we should be thankful that the Spirit is at work actually restraining that evil and preventing us from doing so much harm to those around us. The Spirit filled and empowered the prophets to speak the word of the Lord boldly. It wasn't a shy thing to be a prophet. You had to stand up in public and say, this is the word of the Lord. The prophets took extreme actions that led to being persecuted and even killed. The Spirit came upon King David and the kings to follow. It was the Spirit who enabled them to fight their battles to protect the people. It was the Spirit who enabled them to rule in justice and righteousness. The Spirit anointed the priests. The Spirit qualified them to minister in the tabernacle, to be the go-betweens between the people and a holy God. It was the Spirit who enabled them to dare to stand in God's holy presence, knowing their sin. It was the Spirit who enabled the high priest to go into the most holy place to risk his own life so that he could take in the blood of the sacrifice to atone the people's sin. He's not really the shy member of the Trinity, is he? He's bold and when he's at work in people's lives he causes people to become bold and courageous. So the Spirit is right there, the Spirit is right here. He's at work in creation, in redemption and sanctification. We just need to open our eyes to recognise him. Our readings this morning show us the centrality of the Holy Spirit to Jesus' work of salvation. We first heard from Isaiah 10 and 11. The context of this is a prophecy about the coming judgement upon Assyria. Once the Lord has finished using Assyria to bring judgement upon his people, they're told, then judgement will come upon you. We saw that Assyria was being, was likened or described like a forest. Uh, And the image was used there of the cedars of Lebanon. We also saw that in our opening psalm. Lebanon is famous for its cedars. Um, The Lebanese flag has a cedar on it. These cedars grow up to 40 metres tall and they were, in biblical times, they covered the mountains of Lebanon. Now there's just one little pocket left because over the centuries, over the millennia, these cedars have been prized because they're straight and tall and they were cut down for building uh, ships and palaces and homes. This great forest of great trees, Assyria's destruction would be like the felling of this great forest. But then in 11 verse 1, we see that Israel was also likened to a forest because they were cut down by the Assyrians. But there's one stump. Out of this whole forest, there's one stump that remains. And from this stump will shoot new life. One single person will be raised up and he will bring restoration for Israel. Then in verses 2 and onwards, we see that this shoot, this branch, will be known 
in verse 3, um, verse 2, sorry, for having the Spirit of the Lord upon him. It's this anointing, this feel, being filled with the Spirit that will qualify and enable him to bring justice on behalf of the poor and the meek and also destruction on the wicked, in verse 4. The character traits of this spirit who will rest upon him will then become the character traits of this king, this shoot, this branch. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, without a doubt, this is a picture of Jesus, the Messiah, anointed and filled and empowered by the Spirit from his baptism. All that Jesus did was in the power of the Spirit. He never did something just because he was God in his own right. It was always a perfect union between who he is as the eternal Son, always receiving from the Father what he said and did, but also who he is as the second Adam our representative who lived on our behalf the perfect spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life. Now all of these character traits of the spirit here are referred to in some way in the New Testament as gifts that we receive from the spirit. We know wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But we can only know them as we are in Christ. He's the one who's received the Spirit from the Father. So if we are to be recipients of the Spirit, we are to be in him, united with him. And then in verses 6 to 9, we see what this branch will accomplish. A renewed sanctified creation. We're not only are all creatures living in harmony with each other, but where the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. There's that water reference again. By the work of the Spirit, the chaotic waters will finally and permanently subside from the earth and be replaced instead by another ocean, the ocean of the presence of the Lord. Every creature will know, every creature will be immersed, baptised into the name of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. A second reading in Joel 2 shows us how the fullness of the Spirit will fill and empower us just as he fills and empowers Jesus. Now we'll unpack this passage more next week when we look at its fulfilment on the day of Pentecost, but for now I want us to notice one thing. The Lord says that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. The NIV here, if you have the NIV, says peoples. But the word in the Hebrew isn't really the word for peoples or humanity, it's the word flesh. 
It's the same word that's used when we're told in Genesis 2 that the Lord took from the man's side and closed up the space with flesh. And then when the man and the woman met, he said, at last this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's a very physical word. It speaks of our flesh and blood bodies. It will be on bodies of flesh that the Lord will send his spirit, is the point that's been made here. That brings us right back to where we started. The Holy Spirit is the Lord of creation. He is the one who brought order to the physical realities of creation. He hovered over the water, the physical water, the land, the animals, the stones, the plants and the flesh of human beings that were made from the dust of the earth. And he said, it is good. The Holy Spirit's action of being poured out on all flesh shows that we can't set up a false distinction between body and spirit as if the physical is bad or inferior and only the spiritual is good and superior. All that is made is good and his plan is to bring all of his creation and especially humanity to a place where he indwells and feels and leads, where we in our flesh, in our bodies, will be in perfect communion with God the Father through the Son and in the power and joy of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. O God, the Holy Spirit, thank you for the work that you do in creating, in renewing, in redeeming, in sanctifying. Thank you that you are with us here this morning, not because we've done anything to make you show up, but because you are the sovereign Lord of creation. You're always with us. You're always in us, showing us the reality that we are sons and daughters of the Father showing us the wonderful, liberating truth that the Son bore our sins in his body on the tree and we are now forgiven and restored. Father, we ask that we might know the reality of your pouring out of your Spirit on all flesh, not only as we gather here Sunday after Sunday and in our homes for Bible study and other things that the world might look at and consider to be religious but not spiritual. We ask that we might know those things as fully spiritual events because uh, you are present by your spirit amongst us. But also, Father, we ask that you'll help us to know the presence of your spirit in our day-to-day lives. When we wake up each morning, when we go about the, the ordinary activities of daily life, help us to know that it's because we are empowered and enlivened by your spirit that we are able even to to live and move and have our being. Father, we pray in the coming weeks as we explore more of uh, who your spirit is and what he does amongst us that we might have a, a growing awareness and appreciation and love 
for him and that we might see him work uh, in power and might among us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish with the, uh, the song that we learned earlier. Hopefully you got the hang of it the first time round and we'll be able to sing uh, together. So let's stand and sing.